Traveling the Vortex. We've joined the Doctor as he travels the Vortex, and don't defy me with the Pope. We've landed at episode number 268. I'm Keith. I'm Sean. I'm Glenn. How are you guys? I'm good. I'm well. Have a good week. Have a good Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Belated to everyone. Belated. Belated Valentine's Day. Happy President's Day. Yeah. If you're in the U.S. If you're in the U.S. And care about that kind of thing. (laughs) I don't get the day off, so. Lucky federal employees are the only people that get the day off. Had a nice Valentine's Day. That's good. I got Holly a uh, key fob for her car, so. Is she happy about it? She is very happy. Static about it. <laughs> she, we've had the car for three years when we bought it. It's used this 2009 Pontiac G6. And then uh, we had ponchos for lunch. That's one of our favorite places, just kind of the Valentine's mm-hmm. Day. We, we were running and doing so much stuff today. We really didn't have It's kind a, of an, uh, little an time odd together. Valentine's Day being on a weekend. It was. Well, and even if it would have been on a Sunday. And that was the other thing is the, the, my parents watched the kids Friday night. We didn't really want to impose on them twice. And, yeah. So we didn't we didn't really do anything other than like I said well we gotta have we gotta at least go to lunch together so we went to Poncho's because Caitlin can watch Mason for about an hour by herself yeah and then uh, uh, I had a Valentine's date with Sean tonight to see Deadpool so. <laughs> which was pretty awesome <laughs> it was good that's what I've heard we just got to hung, hang out all day together uh, this was the first Valentine's Day where I didn't work that we've been together is that right yeah wow. Because they have always been on the weekdays and sweeps, you can't take you off. Can't take it off. That's yeah, right. so we just got to enjoy the day together, which was which was fun. We did watch a uh, Man from Uncle last night, or yeah, last night. That's a fun movie. Yeah, it was. It wasn't as good as I hoped, but it was really enjoyable. And then I made dinner tonight: steak and twice baked potatoes and corn. Mm. What'd you and Mel do? A lot of nothing. I was sick last night. I came home and just completely blah. And then um, got up today and watched all the lovely reports of people who were getting their pictures with John Hurt. <laughs> <sighs> Facebook's reminding me, hey, last year at this time, you were taking pictures over yeah, here. Memories can be kind sign. of rough, especially when it's something that's reoccurring and you're not there this yeah. year. Yeah, rub it in. Yeah, it looked like everybody had a great time. And then uh, we made homemade hamburgers and went to the movie. Alright, let's move on to news. Well, speaking of Galley, there was some news coming out of Galley. During the Big Finish panel, Jason Hay Ellery announced that Lucy Miller is returning to Big Finish and Doctor Who doing some short trip adventures. So Sheridan Smith will return for two special short new short trips. There's not a lot of more details other than that. Other than she's saying she missed Big Finish and missed playing Lucy. So you can probably fi- dig and find more details on it. But hopefully more details will be coming later. Uh, also announced was that Adriana Varma, also known as Susie, is going to be taking center stage in one of the Torchwood audios coming up. They keep killing Susie? <laughs> she's not going to be dead this I was time. I about to ask if she, they were going to kill her again. <laughs> Maybe at the end. Again, she's rem- this one will be called "Stop Killing Susie." <laughs> Moving target by Guy Adams is what that one's called. Uh, one morning, Cardiff just stops. Rain hangs in the air. The traffic doesn't move on its on the streets, and people are frozen. The hub is on lockdown, and only one member of the team is free to move. It's time for Susie to save the world. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's obviously said earlier in the. Uh- yeah, so that'll be uh, in the second season of Torchwood's run, which they've been jumping all around because there's going to be a Victorian age Torchwood. There's one with what's her face Yvonne from Torchwood Two. So that's pretty exciting stuff. No, Torchwood One. Torchwood was it Torchwood One? Yeah, it was the original Torchwood. I thought Torchwood One was the Manor. Well, Torchwood One was yeah. I guess you're right. I, I thought Canary, Canary Wharf was yeah, Torchwood Canary Wharf is technically Torchwood. I just got the impression that Canary Wharf was the evolution of Into, from the Manor to yeah. Canary Wharf. That Jack really kind of set up the second one. So the hub was Torchwood Two. Yeah. No, the hub was three. 
<laughs> they called it three in the show, right? Did they call it three? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Two disappeared. Two is the one that was in India or something. Oh, so it just vanished one day. But so Canary Wharf was one or four. I, I kind of agree with Glenn. I, I I personally believe that one was the manor, but then it evolved into the Canary Wharf. Okay. But I don't know that they ever actually specified. I don't think they did. Maybe they decided numbering them was bad. <laughs> so now it's Torchwood Canary Wharf, and they just went. Well, that you could know. be it's the location instead of numbers. There's nobody other than the ones inside the organization at that location know where the numbers are. Yeah. Like the Dylan stores here in town. No one knows what the numbers are about my dad. <laughs> He'll say, 43, I don't know which one that is, yeah. Dad. I'd kind of like to see him go back and actually do a return to the manor. I think that would be I, I think really that's part of what the Victorian one's going to be. I haven't looked too closely at it in fear of spoilers. Well, I, I mean more of a present day going back. Oh, that would be really cool. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I'd like to see some Victorian stuff too. Especially Jack with the mutton chops. (laughs) You've seen that picture, right? All kinds of excited over that picture. Uh, Speaking of big finish news, recently Matt Smith said he would love to do big finish audios. He just hasn't been asked. Hint, hint. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Um... Maybe they can uh, approach him and get him on the show. Uh, in the same interview, he also said he's 100% behind Chris Chibnall as showrunner. And he believes he writes the Doctor really brilliantly. Our other bits of news. Uh, recently, there's been a huge... There's a huge toy expo somewhere. I'm not sure where. Um, I and think this is where... I think this is New York. I think is this the, the toy expo in I New York? I think that's to the yeah, New York Toy Fair. And while there, I didn't see a lot of other Doctor Who uh, merchandise revealed, uh, a lot of pop, uh, Funko pop merchandise, including they've partnered with Playmobil to release new series of six-inch replicas of their little people, including the 11th Doctor and the 4th Doctor. So those will be coming eventually. Uh... At the recommended retail price of fifteen bucks, I don't know. I'm pretty sure they will be individually packaged. Uh, also coming are Marty and Doc Brown, Sherlock and Watson from the BBC Sherlock, uh, some Ninja Turtles and Shredder, and Willy Wonka, the proper uh, Gene Wilder version. Okay. And an Oompa Loompa. I don't know if I'll pick up the Funko. Or the the Playmobil figures, but they're cute. They're cute. I think it's a neat idea. I, the, I, the only one, and we talked a little bit about this before show. I hold some reservation for the Sherlock uh, Watson one figures because I think yes, they're geared towards collectors. But on the flip side, when you take a show that is geared towards adults and market them in a primarily children's geared toy line, it's just it doesn't quite set right with me. Yeah, it's so a bit odd. It's. I appreciate the fact that people that are collectors will clamor to it, but it just putting it in a kid's line. It's to me, it's it's like <coughs> making Freddy or Jason or somebody like that as a Playmobil character. It's, it, that's not appropriate. It's different from an action figure or something where you've got right. those lines that are designed specifically for the more adult collector. But. Well, it ex- looks like it's going to be an experimentation to see how well they do, since it's the first in a series. Then our uh, our last bit of news is there are some questions now to when the Underwatcher Menace will be released in the U.S. This is going to affect the schedule that I'm typing up now. Yes. <laughs> so this is also, because we also mentioned on the show last week that it was coming up. I wanted to make sure this was in the news. The If anybody who pre-ordered it, like Sarah did for me for Valentine's Day, got probably got an email that it's, according to Amazon, the release date has been pushed back to May 24th, as opposed to March 1st. <coughs> now, I have not been able to confirm this on any other website, because I can't find the Underwater Menace Available for sale on any other website in the U.S. I had that a, I've gone, uh, the, the main ones I've gone to. I had an Amazon alert that said pre-order, 
and it took me to a page where I could click a pre-order button, but it did not state when it would come out. It just said it oh. would be you'd be charged when it when was did release. Two weeks ago, I think it was. Um, so Sarah got the email Saturday. There's that. As of right now, TV shows on DVD.com is still listing it as March 1st, but they also have the disclaimer. And they haven't information up- is not complete, and, and they haven't looks, updated it in a while. Yeah, it looks like they ha- and they haven't updated their websites uh, TV because that's where I always go first. They haven't updated it over the weekend, so there will probably be an update coming on Monday saying, hey, the release date has changed on this. I hope the BBC realizes, or BBC Worldwide, realizes that if they don't do an American release, that's going to encourage American fans to pirate their copies. Yeah. I hope they're aware of that. I hope so. We don't condone that. However... (laughs) We would be remiss to point out that it does happen. That's right, BBC. Yes. You'll and release it or else. That perhaps could encourage it. So, not here, but not, not with here. this. <laughs> people not sitting this around these mics, but yeah, Amazon says May twenty fourth. Yeah. Oh, so, it does say May twenty fourth now because a few weeks ago it did. It did not have a release date. So yeah. Well, it was. When I looked, when I added it to my wish list, it was March first. Well, I should say when I clicked on the link to pre-order, yeah. it didn't say anything. So, so it's hard telling when. Actually, it did have some. It said TBA. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> that was in between when that you looked, been. and they actually said yeah. it for March twenty-fourth. So, I tend to trust Amazon knows what they're doing, so it probably is usually. March Maybe the animation ran long. <laughs> Still holding that hope. I'm going to do some more looking and see if we can. I can figure out any more details. So I'll, could, keep, I'll keep everyone posted. You could say that, but the UK release is still that <laughs> came out, didn't? Yeah, it? I was going to say it's yeah. still out and it doesn't have. Not like they're going to do an animated special for the UK or the US release. What else? Why not? They know we don't That's have the attention span for telesnaps. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but I this actually worked a lot better. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. How do we got feedback today? In feedback, we have feedback from Mark. Long time no hear from Mark. Yeah, Mark writes, Marmites and feedback. Back in March of 2011, I found a small podcast on the internet, which was hosted by two lifelong fans and a guy who, due to his lack of traveling in the Hooniverse, did not get giddy when he saw Sarah Jane or chuckle wholeheartedly when the words reverse the polarity of the neutron flow were muttered by that nerdy IT tech who was fixing the old computer in the corner of the office. Now, five years later, I clear my afternoon and tune in to episode 267 of that age-old podcast in an attempt to catch up with the trio who brightened my my days all those years ago. There, settled in my armchair and wrapped up Warm in my favorite dressing gown and slippers, I allowed the hour to pass uninterrupted except for the many nostalgic laughs, not once reaching for my phone to check the time. Then the strangest thing has happened. A trademark the guys hurry to wrap things up conversation happened, and soon after the Doctor Who, th- to- Doctor Who tune played through what sounded like a flute. Hmm, I pondered. Perhaps time escaped me. But quickly, by excuses for lost... My excuses for lost time were squashed by the revelation that the podcasts were now only an hour long. I did not need to clear my afternoon for a three-hour running time. Instead, I could have used it to fill the silence on that afternoon's commute home. It was in that instant that I realized that I had grown, that I had been away for far too long. Whilst the voices remained the same, the structure had adjusted. I had missed out on a huge move in TTV history. I also found that the man who was once a rookie is now the captain of his local Who precinct. Yeah, that analogy doesn't hold up. <laughs> Let us leave that one alone and call it and call the end to this feedback. Guys, I love catching up in our latest episode and I will attempt to join you for Friday Night Who this week. Thank you f- for all the, those years of entertainment which you provided to me and for the help you provided in my personal life and my college days. Here's to more Years at TTV. All the best. Your number one fan, Mark McMarmite. Thank you, Mark. Good to hear from you, Mark. Yeah, Mark, we we have kind of molded and shaped and evolved this podcast into something I think is a little more... New series. Well, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) 
a little more palatable for gathering new listeners. Um, as we kind of did this show, I sort of realized that when you run a podcast that's three hours long, it's quite a bit of a turnoff, especially when the majority of podcasts out there do average about an hour. And I think it's always been our goal to rail these back to an hour. And I think we've kind of comfortably split, you know, they aren't always an hour. Sometimes they're an hour. Sometimes they're an hour and a half. Uh, we have been known to go to on, on occasion when there's some heated discussions and, and lots of things going on. But uh, we have certainly kind of tried to curtail, though. That being said, now you can go back to listening to them on your one-hour commute because it will nicely flit, fit into that slot. Not to mention, as you go back and catch up on all the shows that you've missed over the years, you'll be able to get through them a little faster. So you won't have to slog through three hours of us talking about nothing. So <laughs> it won't be Seinfeld anymore. <laughs> but we're glad you're back, Mark. Thank yes. you so much. All right. Shall we move on to our review? Let's do. The Crusade. The TARDIS arrives in the 12th century Palestine, where a holy war is in progress between the forces of King Richard the Lionheart and the Saracen ruler Saladin. Barbara is abducted by in a Saracen ambush, and the Doctor, Ian, and Vicky make their way to King Richard's palace in the city of Jaffa. Dun, dun, dun! Yep. Which is difficult, because I feel like if it was just the story... If it was just the TV version? If it was just the TV version, it may not get quite as strong of a dun and a Because it's a historical... And my thoughts on historicals are kind of that they tend to be, I don't know, a little bland sometimes, a little too educational. This one doesn't seem as educational. It's I don't not. know if it's the it's having Vicky there instead of Susan. If I don't know if that's a difference because the Doctor and Vicky's dynamic is so much different. Or if it's the setting. Or I don't feel like I walked away knowing more about... The Crusades than I did going into it, whereas some yeah. of the others it does feel more like that. Yeah, like the Reign of Terror, it feels like they're trying to educate you about it. Whereas if you don't know who these people are, kind of going into it, I feel like you'd be kind of lost. Yeah, and again, not that that's a bad thing necessarily. No. Um, I mean, I mean, you can, you can you can pick up through context clues who <coughs> these people are, but the gravity of the situation that the our characters are kind of thrust into. Of the situation that they're going through, I don't know if it would in in the televised story would be telegraphed as clearly. And it, it may be that they didn't feel the need to hammer some of the educational points home as much because well, because it's so much longer further in the run. Well, and it's season two uh, at this it, point. It's an English show. Oh, yeah. we're talking about King Richard. I'm pretty sure he's that that was covered in school. Yeah, you know. <laughs> They, they may not have felt they had to. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think what they do is when they deal with something that's historical, that's probably taught in schools in England, especially in the 1960s. I don't think they felt like they needed to. I, you guys talk about this educational aspect that I've never seen in Doctor Who. I mean, I really haven't. In fact, they pay, play very fast and loose quite often with the, the historical accuracy of, oh. of Doctor Who, and they always have. I think what they do, though, is by putting it in familiar trappings, at least familiar to school kids of the day, that do recognize who Richard I or Richard the Lionhearted is and know the history, then putting in an adventure set in that time, they they maybe find a new appreciation or, or understand a little bit more of the dynamic is what I think they were going for. The fact that Richard wasn't this evil tyrant that was going down completely trying to take uh, Jerusalem by storm. At least that's the perception that you get from this. That there might there was a a element of he wanted Richard to wanted peace. to conquer, yeah. but he also wanted to conquer through peace. And I think that that's the thing that you're meant to learn from this is that war. It's it's more of the moral of the story and not necessarily the history of the story. It's more of the uh, the fact that the doctor you know gives us that little nugget of yeah he'll find Jerusalem but he'll never uh, hold it and and that that in that, fact that, is what happened yeah so. I think what it does is it kind of soft sells the idea of, of of it soft sells the idea of the struggles of war. It soft sells the idea of uh, the pain and the torment and the the difficulty and the and the politics of it. I'm marrying off uh, his sister. You know, it, it's those little elements. I think they expect to teach. It's not necessarily the history aspects because, quite frankly. This one really deviates from Richard I <laughs> as far as a historical figure. So, right. uh, and, 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 and that, that's exactly 
Right. Set being because it's a television show in England in the 1960s, you're probably already expected to know a lot about Richard Right, Rogers. yeah. And this has always been a time period that I've always been fascinated by anyway. I've really been drawn to the struggle between Saladin and Richard. That just seems like these are these are two fascinating characters um, that were locked into this, this struggle. And I, I think it's ripe for this kind of storytelling when you can plop your character down in the middle of the fight and uh, have them interact with both of them. Um, and, you know, as far as the, the educational aspects go, I, I don't... I think when I say the educational aspects, I mean more in the way that I'm sure Sidney Newman meant it when he says, oh, we'll do <laughs> we'll do a Bug-Eyed Monster episode and then we'll do a, a, a Learn Them Something episode, um, or at least get them interested in history. Um, and again, yeah, because I think this story definitely would, uh, a younger Keith would be spurred to go learn more about King Richard and Saladin. Uh, even now, I still don't know a lot about the Crusades in general, despite having watched uh, Kingdom of Heaven not that long ago. Uh, but that helped me going into this story, uh, kind of placing it and what's going on in this in this situation. Because even in the story itself, I don't think it, it fully explores why they're going to war and the, why they think this is such a big important thing of why they're fighting. Well, therein lies the, the, the point, is that they're not necessarily... Teaching, but they're inspiring kids to go and find out more about Richard yeah, first. Yeah. So. And that's, um, I don't want to put this. That's the crux of it with, if, if it had been just the television episode. And again, I, I don't want to give the impression that I don't like historicals. I, that's, that's far from the truth. I do enjoy them. I just, I just think they're a little drier than, it than, to be. than a, Especially the early ones with with Hartnell and, and crew, they just tend to be a little. Okay. Well, if the history of the show is any indicator, they did start doing away with them by the yeah. time the second Doctor yeah, came no, around, no, no. and I think that that's the. There's a reason. I think there's a reason for it. it. Is I think they realized that uh, number one, they were probably playing playing fast and loose with the facts, and number two, they probably weren't as interesting as the Bug-Eyed Monsters or the, the you know the the space and the dialects and and the dialects and the you know. Things that came with that, so they were they were certainly evolving into a different audience, I think. But if we're focusing on our different audience tastes, I yeah. should say, not mm-hmm. necessarily a different audience. If we're focusing, well, and how much of that is, quite frankly, due to the Daleks? If the Daleks hadn't hit, oh yeah, if it the way that they did, like they maybe the the historical formula would have stuck mm-hmm. around for a lot longer because there wasn't that clamoring need to merchandise them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I don't know, but. Um, if we're dealing with just the television story by itself, it's an okay story. It's the book that sells it for me. It's really good. Unfortunately, the issue for my reviewing of the story is it's hard to separate the two. Why do I enjoy the story so much? Is it because I read the book before I watched it, or is it because it's an enjoyable story? I think both. But based on the looking at just the TV story. Looking at just the TV story, I can honestly say I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much as I did had I not I, read the book first. Had the f- two parts been fully there, you think that still would be the case? Or animated? Or animated? Yeah, I think. I mean, we, we Keith and I have kind of discussed our uh, perceived limitations with with a telesnap um, episode, Which, and I, I tend to I think I tend to do better than you do. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm grateful that they're there. I, I think it's cool that and, we have anything. Yes. And behind the scene photos to that extent that we're able to oh, put something together. Oh, especially the second episode of this one. There was like hardly any reused photographs. Yeah, yeah there was a lot that uh, that had been taken there. So that you know, from from a oh, um, just just the nature that they have that. Yeah. I can't think of the word that I'm wanting. Um. It, it, that that is amazing to me mm-hmm. that they had somebody to take photos on the set. Oh yeah, they took that many photos on the set, and that they were able to put well, this together the way they did. Let's be clear: those aren't photos taken on the set. A telesnap is a photo taken off of a video screen. Okay, yeah. So that's what that is. So that's not necessarily somebody on set snapping pictures, as we see quite often with like Marco Polo. There were actually photos taken on the set, taken for publicity. Um, and we'll do a lot more when we actually go into the, the – there's a book, really great book, and I've only just 
scratched the surface of it, but there was a guy that, that actually his thing was he was taking photo snaps in order to just as archival purposes, as history purposes. And it wasn't necessarily something that was being commissioned per se, but fortunately he was taking them. And so mm. that was what the reason why we have these telesnaps. And I think that's why they kind of eventually you'll notice when we do recons, they've kind of end up reusing a lot of things because they don't have as many as they do from certain particular right. episodes. Yeah. So uh, we're very fortunate that in the case that this happened and without going too deep into territory that I don't know that much about, that's kind of, we, we need to, we need to focus on the idea that it, it's not lucky that they were on there on the set taking pictures. It's, we are lucky that somebody was taking telesnaps that could then be sold back to the BBC or sold to whoever was marketing this. So that was that was the purpose and intent of that, and they and I think the reason why eventually they didn't take as many is because of the fact that they weren't utilizing them as many as he was, you know, taking. Yeah. So he probably he probably felt like he didn't need to put as much effort into later shows when he was taking telesnaps. So, hmm. uh, I mean, for the same reason that we're lucky we have the audio. Yes, yeah, which is completely yeah. a fan thing because in fact it, we're, I'm very grateful the BBC has brought bought back a lot of this audio that that fans and there's really only about a handful of fans that, that recorded this in their living room on these very old <laughs> audio recorders is the reason why we have a lot of this surviving audio and they were able to sell it back to the BBC and for archiving purposes and clean it up and make it usable. And even some of the uh, recons in the early days that a lot of the, that the original groups that were reconstructing these was that raw audio that was really difficult to hear. Yeah. I don't know if you guys noticed in the first loose uh, canon version we had, the audio is, is a lot more raw and, and less structured. And, and I actually turned my TV up for that particular episode. The last uh, one that we had, which was the second reconstruction, the audio I thought was a lot clearer and crisper. So well, and even in advance to Friday Night Who, I popped in the Lost in Time disc and kind of wanted to see how they presented that, watched the first episode and started the second, and the, the audio in the second one, and that one too was also pretty rough. So, And the, the audios could have been come from different sources as well. Yeah. So that could have been the case in that situation. <coughs> from, from my perspective of this, and I'll just I'll share a little bit because – uh, I think I watched this reconstruction a couple of years ago, and I coupled it with doing – I watched the recons. I watched the episodes that do exist. I also did the BBC radio audio. that, that They call it radio audio, but it was basically a reconstructed soundtrack that had all of the parts but was then linked with narration by William Russell. And uh, so he, you could kind of visualize what was going on in your head with help of him narrating the in between things that you didn't know what was going on. And I remember watching the recons for this, and this was probably only my second or third recon. I actually, sit down from beginning to end and watch a recon. And I remember struggling with the story and not being able to follow it as well, and being able to follow very well the stuff that survived. But, but when we got into the reconstructions, but having a, just having a tough time struggling with it. And so I found this time by you adding the novelization, on which I wonderfully uh, – I don't know what word I'm looking for, but uh, premonition to do, I guess, by on your, on your uh, end, Sean. By doing that, I had a greater appreciation in watching this, even the reconstructions, and being able to get a lot more out of it, knowing more in-depth the story by – relating it to the novelization. So I had a much better time with the reconstruction this time, knowing the specifics of the story and the characters and being able to follow it a lot better. So it actually just completely elevated my enjoyment of the television uh, story by having read the novel and novelization and having to be able to put together the pieces that way. I agree. I think that's where I come down on it. I, you yeah. ask, you know, would I have enjoyed the story as much if it was all there? I think it would still be a good story. I still think it would be a, a, a fine story. But probably for the same reason that I have a slightly greater affinity for some of those stories that maybe not all a fandom likes, like The Invisible Enemy, it's because I read the book over and over and over and over <laughs> Which again. Which adds the added depth. So, so there's that, that, that just little bit extra that you know I have associated with it. And so this was kind of along the same lines. And you know, I agree with you, knowing what the story was, that when you get into a telesnap part of it, and it's like, okay, this is where this happens, or this is the part, oh, they cut that out, they didn't have that in the, you know, and you're able to kind of go along with it, it I think it drew you in a little bit more. 
And uh, yeah, I propose. I, I, I agree with you. I propose we do that from now on. If we do, yeah, yeah, let's, yeah let's read the book. It certainly makes it. And this was your guys' first foray, with the exception of doing uh, Marco Polo, which was the thirty second or the thirty second, thirty minute reconstruction that you guys watched. Now we didn't review that, but you guys talked a well, little bit yeah, about we, it on uh, the Ice the Warriors, show that we did. and then the Ice Warriors, and yeah. the Ice Warriors, and. Uh, we had uh, well, one of, episode of Web of Fear, yeah. which was so. Well, and that's you been and kind I of did, your the uh, abominable snowman. And did you watch the recon on that? I can't yeah. remember. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, but um, I've been a little more fortunate. In fact, it's a lot easier for me to watch telesnaps from the or, uh, reconstructions from the the standpoint of when I was reading along with uh, uh, Neil Perry and his wife Sue's books, Adventures with the Wife and Time and Space. I decided to kind of plow in and see the recons of stuff so that I kind of can appreciate Sue's point of view when she's talking about, cause she's watching it for the first time as uh, they've chronicled it. And, uh, the more reconstruction I did, the more I got into the ability to watch the recons and really can maybe kind of follow them a little better. So that's, that's been real helpful for me as well. So, yeah. And with the, with the recons, you really do have to kind of, the tweeting along to the recons is a little harder too, because it's, you don't want to miss any text that's going across the screen or right, anything, right. so you don't miss anything. That's that's the biggest challenge I have, really, with the recon. On Friday Night Who, there was a lot of silence during episode two and episode four. <laughs> well, that's, that just kept getting sucked into the story. And it's fascinating how many changes were made between the series, the, the actual show, and the, what he did in the novelization, because it's the same author. It is. That's the fortunate thing is that it's David Whitaker that was able to number one write the story for television and then turn around and do the novelization for it. Yeah, you get a lot more insight in what he perhaps perhaps would have because obviously he would have written the story first. But it's something that he probably when you go as a as a writer into something you kind of have an outline in your head. You sort of have. You may have even sat down and put down a lot of notes uh, with a much bigger story that you kind of whittle down into. Four television episodes, yeah. and it's interesting to, to to see what he maybe kind of imagined when he went into writing the story for television, and what may have got excised from the story in order for uh, time to fit into that you know constraints of, of four episodes, twenty five minutes apiece on average. Uh, to be able to go out and fl- flesh that out a little bit more, and especially I think the final episode. Uh, which is ultimately the, the rescue of Barbara from yeah. El Akir. Um, that just comes, it just, just bounces off the pages of the novel. I mean, it's just, there's so much more, and there's so much more that Ian uh, has to do in this as opposed to uh, in the, 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 in the uh, television series. It's, uh, what's his name? Uh, Oh, his name escapes me. But the guy that has the daughter who takes in Barbara and they hide. Oh, and yeah. he's missing uh, the, the other daughter. And he's trying to his, – his goal is to uh, avenge his family that were presumed killed um, by Elakir. And he kind of at the end shows up to save the day. Yeah. But, but Ian has done a lot of the legwork ahead of time. And that doesn't happen so much in the television story. So I thought that was quite interesting that that kind of broadens out and fleshes out. Uh, kind of a, an uh, act three of the book, if you, if, you, if you were to bring it out. The, the, the climax of the story really is the whole chasing. When you're reading it, I, I kind of felt like I could tell okay, this is in the show. This is for sure going to be in the show. This is for sure going to be in the show. We've got the Doctor and Vicky at court. That for sure is going to be in there. We've got uh, this little aside with Ian and Saladin. Okay, that's going to be in there. And uh, we've got Barbara being, you know, dragged along. They're not going to throw her on horseback. I just got, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to see that part of it. But, yeah. Her know, kidnapping, is, I think, is drawn out and fleshed out a little better in the book. Yeah. Well. Oh, yeah. But it's the climax. When you get down to the end... That you did pages and pages and pages of Ian being staked out with honey and ants, and and then convincing the thief to come with him, and and it, and it all plays out the way it does in the book. It's just so much quicker on TV. Yeah, well, I think his appreciation for Ibrahim also kind of comes across better in the book, and, and yeah. they can't do that in the televised story. And I think Ibrahim is almost as enjoyable in the television story as he is in the book, or becomes in the book. Um, but he is he is a lot more enjoyable in the book once the the characters fleshed out and he he almost 
he almost kind of rectifies his means in the novel better in the uh, in the novel of what he did to i mean it it really comes across as this is his profession this is what he does for a living yeah. this is kind of expected of him yeah and he almost comes into it as a and and Ian should just kind of understand that this is the situation. This is this is what I do. Um, it doesn't come across so much in the in the televised story, mm-hmm. and so there's not as much redemption when Ibrahim actually helps him uh, by getting the horses. And in the book, you know, uh, getting him to where he needs to be, uh, helping him when he does <coughs> knock out the guard eventually. Uh, you know, those, those kind of things uh, come across a lot better. And so the appreciation that Ian has for Ibrahim. Is it's much better in the book, and I like that. It, it, the character of Ibrahim is, is fleshed out. A He's lot. a phenomenal character. Yeah. I mean, he, he goes very, very much from do nothing personal. You know, <laughs> it's, just, it's just a gig. You got to do it. To yeah, all right, let's go. It's you know nothing personal, but I'll go with you. <laughs> You're going to pay me when we get there. Um, I was I I really was looking forward to the sword fight. In the in the harem. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, I kind of feel like we blazed through <laughs> most of that. I, I, oh, and even even the Ben Dehir. Ben Dehir was that the uh, the dad that was trying to rescue the daughter. Well, he ended up rescuing. I daughter. can't remember his name. Even the uh, fallout of the rescue is kind of glossed over. Of all the harem girls that they rescued, it's kind of like yep, yeah, yeah it's kind yeah. of over. It really feels, in my mind, it really feels like David Whitaker knowing what he could and couldn't get away with on a, a, a BBC budget, you know, went to the nines for the for the novelization and tied up all those loose ends that maybe his writers like. I Harun Ed Din. Yeah, Harun. Harun Ed Din. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, Harun Ed Din. Yeah. Um, but just uh, all those things that he, he he wanted to, but maybe knew that you know I'm going to tie this up in here because I know we're not going to get to it. I know we're not going to get to it. Including <laughs> one of my John's favorite, favorite bits. Part. One of my favorite bits, which is Ian and Barbara on horseback. Yeah, in yeah. this in the setting sun and the the very romantic notion, and uh, she looks at him and realizes that in all time and space, he will always come for her. And she leans over and kisses him. And as somebody who has always shipped Ian and Barbara, it's like, <laughs> ah, this is almost canon. <laughs> it's it's fascinating that you, you don't realize until you read that on the pages of the book that the the the. the the television story, for all intents and purposes, I think fans have always just kind of come to the conclusion that Ian Barber were a thing. And that's why he was so adamant of going to rescue him, when it's or pa- even in the TV. When it's printed on this on this on the page, and you read that, and that's the Ian and Barber that I think we've all kind of grown to to expect is that they they well you know even in even in extended media they get married eventually so. Uh, I think it's even eventually alluded to and canonized in the Sarah Jane uh, yeah. uh, story as well. But it's interesting to look back on Doctor Who in Ian and Barbara's time and realize that there there was there was no romantic connection. There was very little of anything to hint to a romantic connection between the two within the television series. And certainly that was probably because of the restraints of what we could put on television. Right. I'm sure the no hanky-panky in the TARDIS has been a rule for a long time, not just in the new era when, uh, I think it was, was it Russell T. Davis that, that kind of said there's no hanky-panky in the TARDIS? I don't remember which one it was. but uh, Stephen Moffat then broke. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I think that we kind of expect it probably because we're so far removed from it or fans have shipped it so much because in the extended media, it was very obvious. It was there. It was they connected the dots. Uh, it makes me wonder, or, or at least it makes it more obvious that it's not there in the original story, about the original television stories. It's it's, it's quite yeah. How much of it? How much of it is you know stuff we want to read into it? Yeah, exactly. Stuff exactly. We're projecting onto the stuff that we think we're actually picking and, up. Yeah. But uh, to have it, like you said, it's almost canonized because when it comes from David Whitaker, who wrote the story for television, then turned around and wrote the novelization, to me that that qualifies that that feeling that there's more there than just a professional relationship between the two. So. Yeah. Which maybe it started off that way. I mean, if you, I think if you go back and look at Ian and Barbara in Unearthly Child, 
versus yeah, Jane Barbara I, in the chase. Yeah, it's very much yeah, a Yeah, it feels like it's grown over the course of their time together. And the, the thing is, even in the chase, they're, they're gallivanting and having fun and taking pictures and things like that. But they've also grown as, in a relationship of a friendship as well. They've come a lot closer because of their adventures together. Because of, so You can even, read it even either then, way. Yeah, yeah, you kind of – I mean, we, again, you think you still read the romance into it just inadvertently. But if you look back at it, it still doesn't even have a – it has a fun two people that have grown to know each other, having fun together element to it as well. So it, it, it can go both ways. So I think it's kind of interesting. I'm glad that we have come to a point over 50 years that everybody is sort of on the same page, that Ian and Barbara were in a relationship or at least became romantically end. involved by the end of their, yeah. their adventures with the Doctor. Um I want to go to two of my favorite parts in this, and I think William Hartnell is such a joy in this because number one, he's not cranky. There's oh, no, no cranky doctor in this. <laughs> my favorite is Huckster Doctor. Well, there there is a little bit when he's berating the one guy. So there's no crankiness in this at all because he's very Huckster Doctor. He's it's it's great that he goes into this shop of this shop owner. <laughs> And while the shop owner is distracted, he crawls under the table, steals some clothes, passes them out to Vicky, and then comes back up and says, well, I don't really see anything that I want here. And he, he, and he is just completely slain <laughs> on the smoothness with this guy about, you know, how wonderful his shop is kept and how, you know, some great things here. And as, as you know, indirectly, the shop owner believes that or is – kind of trying to grease the wheels with the doctor as well by kind of setting him up and making him, you know, feel good about himself. Well, you, you know, you're such a regal man and you obviously know good taste and blah, blah, blah. So there's kind of some give and take going there as well. But that, that, and then later when the Chamberlain is accusing them of stealing the clothes only to then kind of turn the tables on the Chamberlain when he brings the, uh, the, uh, shop owner in and turns it so that the shop owner ends up coming out much better, and especially so much so in the book, comes out much better. And the Chamberlain is made to be a fool right there by just the the, the words that the doctor says. I think I enjoyed that so much in both the television uh, version of this and the novelization, uh, more so in the novelization because you get a little bit more. But uh, just that was well, so it, much it, fun. It plays really well on television still. It does. Yeah. It really does. And it's nice to see the shopkeeper be reimbursed for Oh yeah, uh, yes. a theft. <laughs> too. And then some, <laughs> because yeah. he's making new clothes as well. So. And the doctor <laughs> keeps saying, you know, it just keeps one upping the uh, regalness of the outfit that he needs to make, <laughs> so they don't make even more money. So, I was slightly disappointed with Elakir um, in the uh, television story. That when, when when I read the novelization, it's like this guy's full blown nut job crazy. And very evil. I mean, he reminds oh, me yeah. a lot of the uh, the priest uh, from the Aztecs, uh, Zachol Khan. I think he makes him even softer. <laughs> you know, in a way, yeah, because Zechel Khan, yeah. Khan is simply doing what he does out of faith mm-hmm. and his personal belief in, in, in the gods. Versus this guy, which is evil just pretty much for the sake of being evil. Well, Elikiri is because he has been... Jilted by love, he's been jilted by women in general, and so he has made his mission to be just as vicious and, and evil to women and, and treat them because he was jilted by a lover. I mean, he he went as far as killing his brother over another woman, which isn't even touched in this. I think maybe there's a brief mention of it as they're trying to tell us, uh, convey to the audience the character uh-huh. of Elikin. Yeah. But yeah. in the book, we get a little bit of that backstory of him actually killing his brother because he was in love with his brother's wife. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing that, that how they're able to paint this guy in such this malicious fashion in the book, and then when you watch it on the television, it just doesn't come across. You know he's the bad guy because he has the scar. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's more of a visual media, yeah. I suppose. He must be bad. He's got a he's scar over his eye. I can't be gotten in a good way. Um, One thing I think well, isn't it the, 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 the wife that gives him the scar, too? Isn't it because I think so. he I kills think was, her yeah. husband? He and She ends up mutilating basically his face with with the sword with the same sword i just there's so much there <laughs> he wants to tv show. oh darn oh that's lost well, that's the, true with any translation from book to yeah. screen all this this is the reverse but 
I, I think one thing that actually worked better for me on television than in the book was King Richard's speech. Yeah, yeah. I is agree. so much more powerful when in the hands of Julian well, Glover. Julian Glover's <laughs> delivery, yeah. Uh, the, the writing was, yeah, that was good, but the way he delivered it, and and it was pretty much word for word from what I remember from the novel. So the, uh, that's one instance where the televised version is just going to win hands down every time. The delivery. It, 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 it makes a huge difference. It does make a big difference. Uh, I the, think The passion he has behind it all is so good. I think Glover made a, a, a terrific... Richard the First. In fact, yeah. I like him better as Richard the First than I do as uh, Jag- the Jagaroth. What's the Scaroth? Scaroth. Yeah, I, I liked him as Scaroth. Don't get me wrong. I thought he was. It was a phenomenal performance. This he did. It's one of my favorite stories. But I really liked his portrayal in this as King Richard. I think that that this was the best thing I've seen him do in any any medium, even as Donovan in uh, Last Crusade, Indiana Jones' Last Crusade. Or General Veers in <laughs> First Strikes Back. Okay, went in that much. But. Or Maester uh, Pycelle. Pycelle in uh, Game of Thrones. Yeah. This is, this is the, the Still have the trouble reconciling. That's the same guy. You can see it in the eyes. It's about it. You can see it. it in the eyes, yeah. Um, he's much older now. He's just he, he does not look as he did 30, 40 um, years ago. Three uh, guys only. Yeah, see, I like him in that, but that's not his best performance by far. No, 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 no. no. I figured you'd have been a little by far. No, I, I think he was. He performed much better as uh, Donovan in uh, Last Crusade than he did as. uh, Can't remember his name in Free Eyes Only. I think Jean Marsh brought a nice element to Joanna too. In in the book, she was. It it seemed like she was written younger in the book. I think she is written younger in the book. And and in the the show, she has a bit more of that regalness to her that I would more expect from that character. But at the same time, it showed her interactions with Vicky on television showed more kindness. More kindness and compassion. I thought the same thing when I watched it. Yeah, as opposed to the book. Christatos. Christatos, yeah. Sorry. I I had had to be Keith. I had to end a bit. She has wonderful interactions with Vicky, and it, it was nice to see Vicky. It, it could have been. I, I wish there was more of those interactions from the book in the TV yeah. series because their chemistry mm-hmm. together was really nice. Yeah, yeah. It, was, uh, it was nice to see Vicky actually have a little more to do than yeah. I think what kind of typically befalls her. <laughs> see, I disagree. I think she's. I think she's utilized much less in this story than she is in a lot of stuff that I've seen. Oh. Uh, she. I mean, well, for the first third maybe to even a half of it she doesn't say anything except for a handful of lines she's relegated to being the disguised boy or boy or disguised as a boy the ward or not even a ward at this point she was uh, his uh, what do you call him the the guys that page page, yeah, yeah, page. page. Yeah, they, they have them in game of thrones too what are they called they're called, uh, they're usually knights usually have them what are they called they're uh maybe it's a page like, page? Uh, like uh, anyway what's his face? that's sort of the role page, that she's but... that she's uh portraying but also then he says well as he tries to defend the fact that they dressed her as a boy it's because they were afraid that if she you know going into this kind of territory that that they feared for her life, which I thought was clever. I thought it was a clever ruse. Um, she doesn't say much until the, the doctor and, and her are sent away from the castle. And then you get a, lot, a little more dialogue. There's still not a lot for her to do. And and, and uh, the princess does show her some compassion and, and uh, get her out of probably what would have been a, a kind of an uncomfortable situation. Because Vicky even bellyaches about having to do it. And rightfully so, in my opinion. But uh, there's just there's nothing she's, she she doesn't serve any purpose to the story for me in this and so there's I mean having her do something is different than her serving any sort of purpose in the story and I think yeah that's, that's true what about um, when when the doctor's privy to the fact that Joanna's going to be married off anybody think there maybe should have been a little more outrage on behalf of Team Tardis you know that. Obviously, we're in a historical setting. We, we this is the well, way I, I things think, are. And, sh- and shortly after that discovery, that Vicky learns, he, the doctor gives her that line of time must move forward. I mean, we can't change the past. It's a, a reworking of that entire speech he gave 
Barbara. And Barbara doesn't know the entire time. And I think Ian is, it's, it, Ian comes across as so concerned, more, so much more concerned about getting Barbara back that he doesn't care if Joanna, Joanna gets married off to whoever at that point. Uh, Ian isn't even really that privy to he, he what's gets going the, on he's because already, well, he, he gets well, that in the television series, he's already left to go uh, oh. barter for Barbara. Um, in the book, I notice he is around when King Richard begins to entertain the notion. Isn't that why he agreed to send Ian, in the, even in the TV version, with that proposal of, hey, he can marry my sister? Yeah, I guess that's, that's true. Right. He does yeah. take the letter. He does with take him, that. Yeah, that's right. So he, he knows it going in, but I, it's, it just comes across that he cares more about Barbara than that's certainly well, true. See, Princess Ian, he's never met. See, Ian, uh, Ian I, can, I, if, I can forgive that. Yeah. As, as, as crass as maybe that sounds, because he's in love and he's in my head, he's going off to chase after Barbara. Okay, fine. But uh, I don't know. It seems like it, I, Vicky I, being Vicky, a, 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 a future futuristic, you know, uh, take on it should have been a little well, more. I think you're confusing Vicky with Susan because Susan Hat would have voiced her opinion. Right, Vicky. I don't. I, I think I get the impression that Vicky has always been kind of the doctor knows what's best. Uh, Vicky, I think, is also portrayed as a. Uh, even though they're this about the same age, I think Vicky is portrayed more as of an, an innocent, um, less mature person. Whereas she Susan was Susan could act immature, but she was uh, more bullheaded about those kind of things. Maybe more experienced about those kind of things. And I think that's why I think it, yeah, if Susan had been there, and especially if Barbara had been there. Uh, yeah, I could have seen, seen some. The Doctor's not no, not not this incarnation of the Doctor ever. It, 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 this is this is this is very much in line with the first Doctor realizing that no matter where he goes, there are certain mechanics that have to be in place, Especially and you don't change it. You don't change. Yeah. You don't. Uh, there'll be a great when we get to uh, not the massacre, uh, the one that's set in Troy with the Trojan horse. What is that? The savages, maybe. Uh, when we get to that, there's there's some really great. This is the way it has to be, and then reluctantly he has to go and <laughs> involve himself and change things. But that's neither here nor there. In fact, it's it's interesting to see the dynamic change a little bit. That's it. But no, from from the doctor, no, from Vicky, not so much because again, I think she, especially at this point, she was still kind of well, this following like along with whatever the doctor, yeah, you know, whatever the doctor so. says is probably the most. And so she's going to go with him. And I think you're right. I think Ian is so distracted from from his mission, and I think Ian, being a history teacher, even probably knows. Oh, he was the history. No, he was science teacher. He was science. Barbara was the history teacher. Barbara's. Yeah. Uh, well, even uh, well, even more so, uh, him being the the teacher, uh, kind of knowing maybe even being maybe in the male chauvinistic role of the 1960s kind of expecting this was just how it was Barbara would have more of the progressive I think and she is oh, yeah. shuttled all, off all, all throughout the time. most of their run it's always been Barbara the one that's protested about these sort of things and historical stories like in the Aztecs of changing time and Ian's always kind of gone along with well that's how things are here yeah. <laughs> he just kind of rolls with it more than anything else so coattailing onto that then knowing that time is written and that you can't change it and that this is the way it's going to be. We know historically that Arthur, Arthur, that Richard is going to get within distance of, of Jerusalem, but he knows he won't be able to hold it. And he knows we, we know he's going to turn around and, and march out. We know that there is no marriage to Saladin's brother with Joanna. And yet the doctor is in there fighting tooth and nail and berating his his, his knight, the Earl, uh, Duke of Earl, whatever his name is, <laughs> um, and, and and very very yeah. vehement about it. Lister, Linster. Yeah, it's spelled Lincaster, but it's I think they, Lister, Lister. So does that Earl come across Lister. as a surprise at all that the doctor's no, not at you know, all? And I think because that hard for. I don't think he knows it's going to fail. Well, that's just it. I think I think the doctor, especially with the, the 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 way he's portrayed in the Aztecs, I think the doctor knows that time kind of finds a way, and I think that's even alluded to by David Whitaker in this book. I think it's this one, or maybe it was something else I read. Maybe it was the Drosten's Curse. I finished that just recently as well, but Drosten's Curse. Uh, 
I think the doctor knows that time's going to play out. I go to the whole idea that the doctor, every time he berates somebody for trying to step in and change things, they throw it back in his face that he does it all the time. And he always comes back with, yes, but I know what I'm doing. And I've always been comforted in the fact that I think the doctor, because he knows how things play out and he knows what things can be manipulated and kind of, you know, uh, jiggered this way or that way in order to make things work to benefit them to get out of a situation or to to smooth the wheels to as far as in their favor, the, uh, favor, the time team. I think that he knows that going against the king is would be detrimental to them. And so going with the king, knowing what the result ultimately will be anyway, it's even easier to side with the king and his ideas, knowing what the outcome is going to be. So no, it doesn't surprise me at all that he stands up to uh, the Earl Lister on the side of the king, knowing what he knows about what's going to happen. I know he. I don't think he thinks he's going to change anything by saying something that the king had already decided to do, because the king was going to trade Joanna for uh, his knight, which I can't remember the knight's name, but the, the guy that was, Edward, I think, was the other guy that had been captured. He was going to trade there anyway. So that was probably a fixed event. It, it had nothing to do with the fact that Barbara is also part of this barter. So I think he knows that the king was going to go through with this attempt anyway. And so that's why he sides with it, knowing that eventually it's going to fall apart. So time being a river that you you can yes. maybe influence it a little bit, but it's going to revert to course at some point and nothing can do. Because, I mean, realistically, you can look at it as the very fact of their arrival, the one night probably didn't make it historically. The guy that they patch up and drag back to job. Because Joplin. they oh, do. Yeah. Because, yeah. They, save him. because they're, they're, they're the only ones that... He would have stayed there and you know, yeah, died. So right away we've 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 altered things off the bat. Word but would the have life got, of one guy maybe is not enough to Word would have got back to the king what had happened because uh Edward did get captured. So I mean that didn't change anything. Bringing the guy back really only validifies Team Tardis being uh in favor of the king. It right. doesn't do anything for changing what the events yeah, that no, happened. No, no. So if this guy had survived and went on to do something great that would have affected the timeline, then yes. But I get the impression that that, that ripple did not affect anything in the uh, course of the river. So no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> because the doctor's done it before. He's done it many times yeah. before where he has he has taken a position knowing full well what the outcome's going to be. And it's, it's one of those things that I think is interesting that, kind of like with you, I have to take it, Sometimes with a grain of salt and sometimes just on faith that the doctor knows what he's doing and that this is a time when it's okay to do it. Because you get certain doctors, the first doctor, the eighth doctor with the web of time, that absolutely not can yeah. you can you change this. And then you get other doctors that are like and they kinda of rush forward and change it and you're just like, But what about the you said that the the space time continuum and the you know and so I think it's you, you just have to accept that. Well, this is one of those times where he knows it's okay. Now, obviously, it's all needs of the story driven, but <laughs> you know, eh, this one we're we're we're, we're going to fudge this, and it'll it'll still turn out okay because that river's not really going to change course. And there but are we, other times when we also come at these stories in the perspective of hindsight because or foresight because we compare the first Doctor to incarnations that will come after. Whereas if yeah. we were watching this in the 1960s, we would have no inclination to trust or believe that the doctor is doing the right thing. Or so from that perspective – The idea that he could change time in yeah. that aspect or anything yeah. since he's so adamant against it. Well, but I think that, that, that what illustrates, what illustrates yeah. Sean's point is that in the Aztecs, if you're watching this for the first time and you're in the 19, early 1960s, and you've just seen the doctor be very adamant about changing time to Barbara and Ian and Susan in the Aztecs to turn oh, around and see, see him then turn and 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 appear to be yeah the I can see Sean's point of view from that aspect of a new viewer back in the day for a first time and going okay why can he do it here but he did he was very adamant that it couldn't be done there because we don't have that reassurance from later doctors that he knows what he's doing yeah now we do and so that's where i come the perspective i come from is no i, I was totally expecting that all right not expecting it but accepting that so 
Not things I had a problem with by any stretch of the imagination. Just interesting notes. I haven't read as many novelizations as Sean has. I didn't have the benefit of having a lot of these books when I was a kid. I had a few. I think I read maybe Genesis of the Daleks. I knew I read a Dalek book. It might even be Planet of the Daleks. I can't remember which one it was. I read um, I read one other second Doctor book, and I think I had a maybe another fourth Doctor book. I this and Abominable Snowman, I think, are the only two of the novelizations that I've read so far in recent days. And I'm finding that the Target novelizations are quite a joy. And I'm actually yeah. excited to. And I know there's going to be some that we're going to come across, and they're just going to be as probably as much of a stinker as the television episode was <laughs> in our perspective. Maybe they'll enlighten me. Maybe Web Planet or yeah, Web Planet will be a lot better after I read the novelization. But I'm very, I'm, I'm very jazzed and excited that we have decided to couple the novelizations with the reconstructions because yeah. I think it will help color our perspective of what they were at least trying to do. Because if you don't have that benefit of having to be, having been there in the 1960s to see what the intent was, it's really difficult to stay focused on what the reconstructions are trying to do. And thank goodness for the reconstruction teams that have made the effort to put these yeah. together and make it available. So. One of these days, maybe when we get enough recons under our belt, maybe we'll do a show on the different groups in the 1980s and 90s that were doing the reconstructions because there's a real fascinating story there uh, mm-hmm. about the different clubs and groups and organizations that were getting together and showing these at gatherings and Doctor Who clubs and conventions that were putting these together without any sort of coordinated effort originally <laughs> and then later kind of came together and, and I think Loose Cannon really kind of picked up uh, the ball and, and did most of them, which is why we're, we we have access to the Loose Cannon stuff. So that's been really fortunate for us. I think, too, with the novelizations, it's one of the things, and having read a few more of them, you, you get ones that, like The Invisible Enemy, which I read and read and read and read and read, and I love the story. But the, the, the story was written by, um, or the episode was written by Bob Baker and Dave Martin, the novelization was Terrence Dix, which, I mean, Terrence knows his way around a Doctor Who episode, and he, he, he knows how to do it. But he didn't really add anything to... It's different when the actual screenwriter... I, I think that's a novel. really yeah. key for this one, is, is right. the fact that it was the, the screenwriter, and that David Whitaker was you know going into it, knowing what maybe he wanted from the story, and knew that he couldn't fit in, or budget was you know preventing him from doing, or, or yeah. length... That he was able, or to. in hindsight, thought, "Oh, I could flesh that bit out a little bit better." Or, yeah, yeah. And I would presume that anything that Terrence uh, Dix novelized that uh, he novelized from the era that he was script editor would also help in perspective because I think he would have had a better. Yeah, he, he might have been someone been that more involved cut out the- some of the story that came in front of him in order to be presented as a story. And so, uh, the other thing benefit I think that that Terrence Dix has especially with Baker stories, is those guys were such good friends and often formulated a lot of their ideas and stories together. Yeah. So they were yeah. they were you, they're almost, almost co-creators of a lot of these stories. And, and so it's probably a benefit when Terrence Dix picks up a Bob Baker story and is able to put it together and put it, and put it in light. Sure. And I, I hope to eventually, in doing more reconstructions, add some of those audios with Lincoln narration. I think that would be a good... A, a nice way to change up instead of doing always novelizations. Add that instead. And they're see, good because see if we like them, they're good because from a time that's what I was sort of doing there um, two or three years ago. Is instead of watching the reconstructions, which I had difficulty with, I would listen to the uh, audio linking narrations, and those were really helpful. So they, they, that might be a better way to approach these when adding that to the mix. Especially since some of the target novelizations are out of print and it's hard to find. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, with the batch that's coming out, hopefully that'll do well. Yeah. We'll get a lot more of them, too, So since they're reprinting hopefully. these now. So. Hopefully they'll do more of the lost episodes. I'm excited to put another recon on. Uh, I know it's yeah. going to be a few months down the line, but I'm excited to do it and, and redo this and, and, and do it with another uh, – or redo it, do it again and uh, do it with another novelization because I'm excited to be able to get into that realm because it kind of adds something to our experience of Doctor Who as well by adding, forcing ourselves to do novelizations gives us one more element that we're probably less familiar with right now. So. Yeah. Well, that, it's, you know, it's high time. I mean, it's been five years. We should probably get into some of these missing episodes. <laughs> and 
And also, can't I'm wait also, for that Omni rumor forever. I'm also excited to do more Virgin Missing Adventures too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already five into those. So, all right, uh, what do we got coming up on the schedule, Sean? Well, coming up next week on the schedule is a return to New Who for Friday Night Who. We're going to do the Girl Who Died and revisit a Shielder, which should uh, set things up very nicely for our episode next week, in which is the first of this year's promise to uh, review all of the. The, the Traveling the Vortex Book Club books. So the January book for this month, for for this year, was um, Doctor Who, The Legends of a Shielder by Justin Richards, James Goss, David Llewellyn, and Ginny Colgan. And uh, so everybody should have had that read because it was January's book. It's now February. But uh, we wanted to give you all a chance to read it, so we'll be discussing that and having our thoughts on that next week. And uh, slight hiccup with the perceived <laughs> delay of Underwater Menace, so... Um, we'll get some sort of confirmation on that. I may have to rework this because we had initially planned on having that uh, the week it came out in March. And uh, so we may be filling that slot with something else. Luckily, we still have a couple more weeks. We do. And the three of us will be at Empower Comic Con this weekend in Topeka. We do uh, encourage you, if you're in the area, if you're in Topeka especially, but if you're in the area and you're able to come to Empower Comic Con, please please do so. This is their first year, uh, something that they've put together since uh, October. No, uh, September, which is when uh, it was kind of conceptualized at uh, TopCon. Uh, and I think they've been doing a pretty good job of, of, of throwing something together. I mean, I, I say throwing something together. I should give them more credit because they're really they're, – they're powering through something that they've really had a limited amount of time yeah. to do. And, and, I, and, and they've gotten some good guests in I, such a short amount I am very of time. impressed with the guest list for, for being a first convention. So yeah. uh, give them some support. And that's uh, – if it's if it's successful this first year, then it'll continue to happen, and we'll get bigger and better things as well. Yeah. So, not that Lindsay Wagner's a good thing anyway; <laughs> it's a <laughs> great thing. So, uh, be sure to since we're uh, talking about support, please be sure to support us on Patreon if you're not already. Um, proceeds from that donations from that come straight into this program; goes right back in this program, 100. percent So we get all of that. And we're able to bring you bigger and better stuff. As we uh, continue to evolve our show, um, also be sure to click on any of those links that you can find on our website at www.travelingvortex.com. Uh, portions of those precedes do come back into the show as well and uh, do go directly into the show 100% of what we get uh, in order to continue this podcast. You can also reach us on uh, various forms of social media. You can find us on Facebook. Traveling the Vortex, Twitter, at Travel Vortex, the Goodreads Book Club, which we mentioned before. Uh, and Tumblr. Tumblr and Google+. And if you want to send us feedback like Mark McMarmite did, you can do that on our website with the Send Feedback tab. Or you can send it directly to us with feedback at TravelingTheVortex.com. Uh, for your feedback, if you want to just chime in on the Goodreads uh thread for the Legends of Shielda. We'll be pulling that up to re- re- read some of those reviews as feedback next week also. Absolutely. And if you were at uh, Gallifrey One in California this weekend, please send us some feedback on that. If you want to send yeah. us audio, that'd be terrific. If you just want to write something up, send it in a feedback. Uh, do it that way as well. We'd love to hear uh, how that went uh, since none of us were able to <laughs> represent the show this year. So. And, and pictures. Yeah. Yes. We'll post your pictures. We really like pictures of you and John Hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else we need to cover before we close this show out this week? If not, until next week, I'm Glenn. I'm Sean. I'm Keith. Cheers. Good night, everybody. Be seeing you. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. You have been listening to Traveling the Vortex. Doctor Who and all of its associated programs are owned and trademarked by the BBC. No infringement is intended or implied.